criminal behaviorology. To assist the criminal and civil justice systems. To improve our society. A podcast like no other. Here is your host, Timothy Joseph. This is Criminal Behaviorology. I'm your host. Happy to see you again, Timothy Joseph. And we are going to have a, a really good guest uh, this time around, uh, reminiscent of uh, Tobin Book, who had his book on here, True Crime Michigan. This is about murder and mayhem in Indiana. It's by Kevin McQueen, and uh, he's got on the back cover, Uncover Grizzly Misconduct, Bungled Investigations, and Baffling Cases in this Chronicle of the Darker Moments in of Indiana History. With an eye for the bizarre, macabre detail, Kevin McQueen tracks down the 17 true crimes and unsolved mysteries in this rap sheet of historic Hoosier homicides from Indiana's hard scrabble past. In fact, this might be Kevin right now. Kevin? Hello, Kevin? You there? I'm using a cell phone and I'm down in a basement, so I'm not sure that it's going through okay. You're you're coming through fine over here. You're okay. coming through fine. I had it on the computer, and then uh, for some reason the recording device wasn't working, so now it's on the cell phone, so now it's working. I don't know. Okay, okay. Uh, how are you? We'd get in the middle of things, and then it would just talk out, because it's been known to do that. Um, yeah, uh, you can never, man cannot depend on technology, so, but, uh, no, but especially I... Especially this man. Yeah, well... I, I'll try not to say that in front of technology because then it'll cut out on me. So <laughs> it can hear us and convinced. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, it appears to be listening in on me, but uh, you know, I, I I mentioned something and then an ad comes up on the cell phone. But uh, oh, yeah. You know, so I'm not the only one. That yeah. Yeah. They say it's the a- algorithms. You know, you're looking up stuff, so it knows what kind of things. But just like. I'll, I'll like uh, mention, oh, maybe I, I need to go to this city and stay at this hotel. And then that hotel ends up on one of the ads. So, you know. Yeah, I, I could understand it if you were looking up these things on a search engine. But what creeps me out is sometimes it's when you say something. Yeah. That happened to me just the other day. I wish I could remember what it was. But I mentioned some completely off the wall thing. And the next thing I knew, there was an ad for it. Yeah. And I hadn't gone to a search engine. So you know, oh, they they say it's the it's the uh, the algorithms that you happen to be looking up things and uh, like maybe you uh, friend mentioned something and had an interest and that leads to that city and that but uh, it's just too many times that too too much precision for me yeah. to believe that um, there's no uh, audio input but you know it's the times we're living in. That's true. Yeah. So. Uh, we're recording now. I hope that's okay. Oh, sure. That's fine. Um, uh, thank you for calling. Um, uh, I, I really enjoyed your book and, uh, I've, uh, I've 
interviewed a few true crime authors, but this one was particularly entertaining because of the of the uh, uniqueness of the many stories in there. Well, thank you. I appreciate it, and thanks for having me on the podcast. Uh, our pleasure. Um, I'll ask you what. Uh, Where's this interest come from, uh, in particular regarding, um, well, I'll tell you, I'll ask for this first. How many books have you written? Um, I've done so many. I actually have lost count of them, but I think it's 21 and I'm working on two or three right now, which hopefully will come out next year. Uh, when did you, are they all nonfiction? Oh yeah, I couldn't write fiction if yeah. my wife depended on it. Yeah, I don't know how they do it. It would be uh, it's it's quite an accomplishment, I think. But yeah, nonfiction's tough enough. So, uh, when did you decide you were going to sell books for money? Well, it was just about exactly twenty years ago in two thousand one. Uh-huh. I was working as a tour guide at a mansion called Whitehall, just outside of Richmond, Kentucky. Okay. Which uh, was uh, built by a famous emancipationist named Cassius Clay. Okay. And there had been a few books about Clay, but most of them were somewhat old. And while working there, I found all these uh, letters by him and about him, interviewed some people who were related to him. And I've always had a habit of going through old newspapers. I kept finding all these stories about him that had never been in print before. And I thought, you know, I should write a new book about him with new information. Mm-hmm. And uh, it actually got published, and everything snowballed after that. So Cassius Clay wasn't just a boxer that became uh, Muhammad Ali. Uh, he was somebody... Well, um, you know. interesting thing. Evidently, he was named after this Cassius yeah. Clay. So, uh, yeah, it sounds like it. Interesting. Then what uh, What would you say caused your interest in true crime? And I'll, I'll use the term that you've used in particular, historical true crime. Well, uh, I never could really come up with a good answer for it because as far back as I can remember, I've been very interested in crime stories and very interested in history. So a historical true crime to me is just mm-hmm. the best of two genres at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just goes all the way back to the mists of childhood. Mm-hmm. What's the earliest uh, true crime case you've covered in one of your books? I think the earliest one that I've done uh, was one that went back to about 1820 mm-hmm. or so, a Kentucky case in Frankfurt. But I wrote a book for Indiana University Press about two years ago. Oh, no, it was last year, called Murderous Acts, uh, 100 Years of True Crime from the Midwest, and it has some stories going back to the 1820s. Okay. What do you think? Uh, what do you think leads to the popularity of true crime as a as a genre? Well, I have a theory. Mm-hmm. Maybe two theories in one. Mm-hmm. Uh, people seem to be interested in unsolved cases, right? Simply because they like a mystery, and you provide as many historical clues as you can, and possibly a few ideas, a few uh, theses for what possibly happened, and mm-hmm. people can work out their own solution or they can agree or disagree with yours uh-huh. and if it's a solved case i think people simply enjoy watching the bad guys get caught uh-huh. and lose uh-huh. what about the ones uh where they're not caught or as in uh, at least one or more of the cases in your book 
where they escaped. Yeah, there are cases where they're caught and then they escape. Sometimes they're found and sometimes they're not. Yeah. I guess I should mention the book we made is called Murder and Mayhem in Indiana. Yep. And it came out about oh, six or seven years ago, I think. Okay. Has it been a pretty popular book? I, I see it a lot. I see it in the pharmacies and the book aisles and things like that. I think it's sold pretty well, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe it's also been sold at a, uh, I think it's a chain store called Eagle mm -hmm. in Indiana. And I don't believe they have Eagle stores in Kentucky, but I've heard that Eagle in Indiana has them. I've seen them this at... This particular book. I've seen them at CVS. Yeah, there's a... I've seen them at drug stores around here, too. Mm -hmm. The Grim Collection of Tales includes... This is from the back of your book. Unimaginable Incidents... Like the Indianapolis businessman whose car contained suspicious hams and the man who handed his new bride a drink of carbolic acid. That's the kind of uh, that's the kind of stories you like to cover? Well, they're unusual and they're bizarre and they're true crime. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's a that's a good uh, good trifecta there. Good good three three point uh, pull to it. I think so too. <laughs> Uh, just like any other kind of story, some true crime stories are more interesting than others. Some crimes are more interesting than others. Some are kind of run-of-the-mill, which I try to avoid, and some are really strange and out there. Uh -huh. Do you have any, um, do you have any, I don't know, ethical or moral qualms about covering cases like this? Or how do you, as a writer, how do you handle that? Well, I actually do worry about that sometimes. Mm -hmm. And one way that I handle it is I, I don't cover anything recent. Mm -hmm. I sort of have a personal cutoff date of about 1940. Okay. And I won't write about anything after that because I figure it's very possible that there will still be living people related to killers or victims. Mm -hmm. I don't really want to step on anybody's toes. And yet sometimes their toes get stepped on anyway, even if it's before 1940. You've had that happen before, where people's recollections go that far back? Well, generally it's family stories. Uh -huh. It happens often enough that one of my books that came out last year, called Murder in Old Kentucky, the revised and expanded edition, I've got something in the intro mm -hmm. about uh, basically two kinds of people who react to these stories. One, you have people who seem to be kind of perversely proud of the fact that they've got a criminal in the family tree. And then you've got another set of people who I like to call exonerators who are determined to prove their ancestors were innocent, uh, uh, no matter what the historical record says. Yeah. They never have any evidence. It's always family stories, except that my great-grandfather's brother told them, and you know, it's really not evidence at all. I, I understand why they're doing it, uh -huh. but they need something better than that, something more convincing. You, you're probably familiar with that Sam Shepard case. Um, oh, right. That he, Cleveland. Yeah, that he was, I guess, yeah. Uh, that uh, And his son uh, apparently uh, did the legwork and did a lot to, to show that he was innocent or that the evidence they had against him wasn't uh, sound. Yeah, that, that was a very, very interesting case. And that's one where a descendant actually will, as you said, uh, mm -hmm. do a lot of like, work and research and really uncovered a lot of extremely good evidence showing mm -hmm. that his mm -hmm. father really was persecuted wrongly. 
Yeah. Well, I commend you then for that um, cutoff date of 1940 to uh, out of sensitivity for other people because the the, the true crime thing has really uh, gone off the going off the deep end there's big conferences about it they have big crime cons and uh you know it's i'm always asking the writers where's all this popularity come from even though i'm as guilty as anybody else i have a podcast on it but i i'm looking for the line where okay this is interesting historical psychological you know other other areas of interest um but uh, where is it exploitation? You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. And there seems to be kind of a fine line there. Mm-hmm. I, I, at least I, I encourage people to like you to, to be aware of it, to have some kind of a standard or some kind of way of looking at it to, out of the sensitivity to it. But, you know, could I ask you, having said that, could I uh, ask you about a couple cases that you've got in your books? Oh, certainly. In chapter six, uh, I had never, actually, none of these. I don't, I thought, and I'm, I actually pride myself on uh, knowing a lot of true crime. And I grew up in this state and I didn't know any of these. But uh, the one about chapter six, oh, I didn't write the uh, title down, but a, a woman was taking care of twins. They turned out to be uh, not real people. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for bringing that up, by the way. Yeah. Um, you you get some true crime books where they just tell the same stories mm-hmm. that people have heard already dozens and dozens of times. So I'm always trying to look for stories that maybe people are not familiar with. Mm-hmm. So thank you. I'm very pleased to hear that. Uh, what was going on in that particular case, it was in, in Hammond mm-hmm. around uh, 1921 or so. Mm-hmm. And a man named Frank McNally married a much, much younger woman. And uh, she told him she was pregnant. He was delighted because he'd always wanted to be a father. And she supposedly gave birth to twins, but she kept them in the dark all the time. Okay. And she did all the feeding, all the caring for them, which, you know, at the time that wasn't at all unusual because that's what the mother generally did. But she wouldn't let visitors see them. Mm-hmm. And uh, finally, her husband got a little suspicious about this, and so did the neighbors. And once when she was out running errands, a neighbor lady sneaked into the house with the husband's permission and found that she had never given birth at all, that they were actually just two China dolls. And somehow she had managed to completely fool the doctor and her husband into thinking she'd actually given birth, which uh, in the book I speculate... How long did she think she was going to get away with that anyhow? And uh, her husband was convinced that she did have children and murdered them, and she went on trial for murder. Mm-hmm. Or so that they couldn't prove any murder and that no children had actually really existed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so for the time period, uh, Dad never changed the diapers even once. Evidently not. Or... Fed them. <laughs> uh, I guess he never held them either. Uh, I would think that would give it away, but... Uh, uh, Maybe they were so swaddled up that he couldn't really tell that they weren't real, and she kept them in a dark room. Yeah. It's just one of those things that's so bizarre, and so... It just seems to be impossible, yet it really happened, and you just can't help laugh at it. Does anyone have any idea what her motive was for doing something like this? 
The only thing I could find as far as a motive was that she'd had an operation before she got married, which rendered her sterile. Okay. And she simply didn't want to disappoint her husband, so she pretended to have children. Okay. So I'm sure he wasn't disappointed at all to find out they were really just dolls. What what a tangled web we weave uh, when we <laughs> deceive. Uh, yeah, he... Uh, well, if he'd never had kids before, he must have been uh, just pleasantly surprised that they were, these were some of the quietest uh, infants. Uh, very, very quiet and very clean. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. Well, okay, uh, one that really stuck with me, and it's historically uh, as, as an issue, uh, Chapter 15, Hypothetical Questions in Abundance. That was the... Uh, the guy's name was Kaiser, and yeah, yeah. Can you tell us about that one a little bit? Okay, yeah. He was a reverend named Edmund Kaiser uh-huh. up in Gary, uh-huh. and it was July two thousand. Sorry, July nineteen fifteen, not two thousand fifteen. And World War One was going on. America hadn't entered it yet. It wouldn't enter it for a couple more years, but it was certainly going on in Europe. Mm-hmm. And Germans were extremely unpopular around the world, including the USA. And of course, uh, his name looked and sounded like Kaiser. <laughs> and he got in trouble because he was very, very loudly pro-German. Mm-hmm. And he gave pro-Germany sermons, and he angered a lot of people in his own church by refusing to be neutral. Uh, by praising the uh, the Germans after they sunk the ship, the Lusitania, was what really, really got people mad at him. Mm-hmm. And he was assassinated one night, shot in his house, and dragged outside. There were a number of conflicting theories. Some thought that he was cheating on his wife. Some thought he would, was uh, caught up in a bad business deal. But the thing that seemed to have the most evidence behind it was that some pro- or anti-Germany groups had assassinated him for being so obnoxiously pro-Germany. Mm-hmm. And it was never solved. That was one of the unsolved cases. Yeah, I, I had heard before that the like the German-American presence uh, in uh, the German presence in America was very prominent at one time. And so that now we have, you know, words that we use like kindergarten and uh, there's, you know, Germantown, Pennsylvania. There, there was a lot of German influence, uh, and then we came around to World War One, and uh, there was, I don't know, kind of a backlash to that. Yeah, a lot of people had to change their names. Yeah, to something that wasn't quite so dramatic. Um, in fact, in my last book, or one of the two I had out last year, the one I mentioned earlier, Murderous Acts, from Indiana University, there is a story of a couple in Wisconsin. I think it was Wisconsin. It was Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were being persecuted because they were Germans at uh-huh. the time of World War I. Uh-huh. Uh, but they were being persecuted by fellow Germans uh-huh. who were uh, trying to swindle them by saying, you know, uh, give us some money as a bribe or else we will tell the authorities that you're German spies. Uh-huh. And it ended up in a bloodbath. Oh, and, man. Uh, this chapter begins with a few examples from my case files on... Uh, anti-German sentiment in America at the time, ranging from comical to really quite serious. Yeah. 
Yeah, it it ended up being. It was. I mean, we can look back on it like what the. But it was a pretty serious thing at the time. Yeah, that that was. Uh, I I couldn't quite make out that one what the truth was, but it seemed like it had elements of espionage and politics and maybe some personal stuff. You know, I'm not sure what to make of that one. I'm not either. It was never solved, or at least the, the, the murder wasn't solved. But they were hinting for a while that it was even bigger than just simply a murder. It, it was uh, rumored that he, in fact, it wasn't just rumored, but some government officials actually said that his murder had something to do with uh, German saboteurs in America. Yeah. Arrests were promised, and then suddenly they all clammed up about it, and you never heard another word. So... We're just left to wonder, was it true? Did they really find saboteurs? Did they think it was wiser not to say anything about it and release details? Were they mistaken? So these are just things we don't know, and I guess we never will know. I'd heard that uh, they had at least one case where German saboteurs had uh, snuck into the United States and were plotting, you know, to, uh, I don't know, poison things or blow things up. to that, that that actually happened in World War One. Yeah, I'm sure there definitely had to be at least a few. Yeah. Um, well, the next chapter, uh, I think, was one of my favorites. The Boy Bandit, Thomas Hole. Do I say his, H-O-A-L was his actual last name? I assume it's pronounced Hole. Hole, yeah. Thomas yeah, Hole. The Boy Bandit. There are a lot of twists and turns in that one. Can you tell us about it? That one was a real epic. <laughs> uh, basically, he and his family lived in New Albany. Uh-huh. And then they moved to Louisville. And uh, But while they were living in New Albany, they lived next door to a bank. Mm-hmm. And apparently, this was a very young man. He was a teenager. I'm trying to remember. He was 15 or 16, something like that. Mm-hmm. Evidently, he'd been daydreaming about being a bank robber. Right. And also, evidently, he read a lot of dime novels, which often glorified outlaws. And largely, that's what his downfall was blamed on by pop psychologists at the time. Uh, so the family moved to Louisville, and he traveled back to New Albany, and he kidnapped a chauffeur and forced him to drive him to the bank. And he tried to rob the bank, but he was so nervous that he just shot wildly and ended up killing one of the tellers immediately. And he shot the bank president, who lived for several years before he died. And he shot the chauffeur, who was his his ride. Mm-hmm. And the chauffeur was badly injured. He eventually recovered. And so once Hull was captured, uh, there was this huge legal dilemma should he be hanged because he was clearly guilty of murder and yet he was so young and it turns out at the time indiana had no law against against hanging minors so it very well could have happened and he went on trial and he had the insanity defense and it was just incredible incredible trial the way everything worked out well part of his insanity defense was uh reading these cheap uh adventure type pulp fiction novels led to his mental state that uh, yeah the dime novels yeah i I mean that even he blamed it on the dime novels which i guess that's an easy (laughs) way out is to say oh yeah the books made me do it well so that that was kind of uh like uh 
I mean, a few years ago, they were blaming rock music. Uh, that, oh, uh, yeah. yeah. That that was, and for that era, it was these dime novels. Uh, you, you've got a very interesting <laughs> illustration from uh, 1909. Uh, St. Louis Globe Democrat newspaper did not like dime novels, and they've got a little illustration where it shows the father... Uh, apparently burning up these little uh these uh influential magazines oh, and, yeah. and it's taking the boy to the woodshed take him to the woodshed yeah and, and at the bottom of the picture we see what happens to boys who don't go to the woodshed and have their books burned and he was a criminal in court who needed a shave and it was a sort of an interesting but heavy-handed message so so they had actual experts there talking about these uh these cheap uh novels and how they could uh they could influence people's minds and uh cause them to become yeah criminals it, it reminded me of the anti-comic book backlash from yeah. the 1950s yeah where all of these experts you know and they weren't quacks they really were experts saying yeah. that uh crime comic books and horror comic books were turning children into little monsters and it's why to this day, if you pick up a comic book, you'll see the little stamp on the co- on the corner that says "Approved by the Comics Code Authority." <laughs> oh, that's where that so, comes from. So, to because they were afraid comic books were causing mental instability. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, so Thomas Hall, he had a a box to mail himself. Yeah, that was one of the funniest parts of the story, because I contend in most cases of true crime, no matter how bad the crime is, if you look, you're always going to find some humorous element. And in his case, the way he thought he was going to get away with this, he had this tremendous box with a hinged door on it, and he had it packed with water and food and a flashlight and clothes and a bed, and guns, and maps, and a railroad timetable, and matches, and a fake beard. And he was actually going to get in the box and seal it up and have himself mailed off to, I think, Nashville. No, to Knoxville. Mm -hmm. But they caught him before he could do it. And the box actually became a celebrity in its own right. It was put on display, and people would come from miles and miles around to take a look at it. Uh, so he uh, has a, sh- a chauffeur, a, a driver, take him to the bank. He just he just starts shooting. Uh, yeah, he just started shooting wildly. Um, killed one man outright, injured two others, one of whom died years later. And the chauffeur barely survived. And It just shows, you know, what a wild and stable kid that he was, that he shot the man intentionally, who was supposed to give him a ride away from there. And at the whole, I guess his plan was that he would rob, get back, climb into the box, and get mailed away. Some get mailed, get mailed away to Knoxville. Um, I don't know what he was going to do once he got to Knoxville, but that was his plan. Um, yeah, I, actually, uh, as an aside, I'd read that that uh, that that happened. A guy mailed himself from Australia to England, like he couldn't afford the plane flight like in the 60s sometime and then he got book rate and his friends put him in a box and he got mailed all the way to england but that's another story 
so he so then he goes on trial, tries this insanity defense, um, and uh, his uh, his parents never paid the lawyers. No, his parents were really very interesting characters. And by interesting, I mean extremely strange. Um, at first, they didn't seem to care if he, if he hanged or not. Then they changed their minds, and they hired very high-priced lawyers to defend him. Uh-huh. But they never paid the attorneys. So then, then they just disappeared. Where they went, nobody knows. So the attorneys uh, ended up just getting stuck for a fee. I should point out he didn't uh, he didn't get hanged. He ended up going to the reformatory right. for life. He he received a, yeah he received a life sentence. Um, and then he he's in there and uh, he makes attempts at parole. I I think using the uh, using the uh, dime store novel influenced my mind uh, excuse again, and he was not successful at getting parole. No, he stayed in jail till let's see, nineteen nineteen. He actually broke out of jail <laughs> with about four others, and he was never found. No one knows no. what happened to him. Uh, really? So he just vanished. He disappeared he himself. Vanished. Yeah, maybe he got mailed away somewhere. I don't know. But a... <laughs> maybe. Uh, very interesting. So. Uh, the the uh, they kept publishing those dime store novels and uh, the rest is history I guess. It's true, and uh, today they're actually quite collectors' items. If you ever read some, you'll be amazed that there was such a fuss over them because um, they aren't obscene and they don't they glorify violence to a degree, but they also mm. glorify the lawmen who capture the violence, the, the the criminals. Right. So they're actually quite moralistic, but at the time, it just drove society reformers crazy that kids could buy these things so cheaply and apparently be influenced by them. And there are cases of kids who'd read them and then do stupid things, but, you know, you, you could say that about anything, from TV shows to movies, well, etc. I'm going to say, what would they say now? I mean, it, it's so so it was a new... It was a new stimulus in the environment that uh, probably increased ability to uh, to manufacture written works and maybe increased literacy that more kids could have access to these things. That's, and, that's very true. Yeah. And, uh, some people at the time pointed out the people who were in favor of dime novels saying, well, look, we want kids to read their reading. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's my uh, that's my reaction. Like, oh, if it got the kids, I mean, my modern reaction, if it got the kids reading, you know, that's great, you know. But uh, <laughs> different uh, different viewpoint back then, for sure. Um, the chapter seventeen, uh, I'm going right. The 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 three last ones interest me to me the most. Three ways to escape punishment. Uh, <laughs> You, you, that one was like, okay, I'll let, you, I'll just let you. Um, actually, can I yeah. read the the very start of it? Um, may I read the very start of it here? For oh, the sure, sure. Three ways to escape punishment. Indianapolis citizens who rose early on Friday morning, February second, nineteen thirty-four, saw the rare but unwelcome sight of a man's body slumped in a parked car with the motor running. He had been shot in the back of the head 
but turned out to be no ordinary thug or bootlegger. The victim was none other than the Reverend Gaylord V. Saunders, age 36, a former pastor of a, a Methodist Episcopal Church in Wabash, Wabash, Indiana. So what happened to Reverend Saunders? Well, this is one of those cases where it's just so bizarre that even though it's a tragic thing, there are just some elements in it where you, you just can't help but think it's kind of funny in a dark sort of way. He had been a reverend, but then he gave up the uh, gave up being a preacher and decided to go to embalming school, <laughs> looking for a change of occupation, I guess. So he went to uh, from Wabash to Indianapolis to attend embalming school, and he had a much younger roommate named Theodore Mathers. Mm -hmm. who evidently fell in love with the reverend's wife because it was he who killed the reverend in the car. He and one of his friends who came along for the ride and evidently had no idea what they were about to do, a guy named Basil Rowe. And he was just extremely easily caught. They even caught him at the reverend's house. Mm-hmm. He promised his friend, Basil Rowe, uh, stick by me and I'll make sure that your name stays out of it. But Basil Rowe went off and immediately informed on it. Mm -hmm. So he ended up uh, on trial and uh, the Mrs. Saunders went on trial too because it was thought that they had collaborated right. to kill the reverend. So she went on trial first. And she offered her, her attorneys, I should say, offered three totally separate uh, defenses to get her off. One of them is the famous abuse excuse where she claimed that she lived in mortal terror of her reverend husband. Um, she claimed that um, he was an alcoholic and had turned into an abuser, a wife beater. And uh, was crazy from smoking marijuana, which I think in 1934 might have been more convincing than it would be today. Right. She thought, uh, or she said she thought, that he was possessed by the devil himself and all kinds of things. On, on page, go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, no, 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 go ahead. Uh, it, it, it comes to page 111. It may have seemed at this point the defense was overdoing it. But to play it safe, it tried a third time-tested possibility for saving its client. The temporary insanity dodge. No, not her husband's insanity, but her own. In other words, if the jury didn't believe Reverend Saunders was crazy, perhaps it could be persuaded that Mrs. Saunders was. The, defense, the defense's use of this strategy was implied at the beginning of the trial when prospective jurors were asked whether they believed in witchcraft. They also were asked what their attitude would be toward a woman who believed her spouse was possessed by old Nick himself. The defense claimed that Mrs. Saunders had been driven insane by those undisclosed, unnatural acts of the slain man. Yeah, they had they implied a lot of uh, a lot of provocative stuff uh, earlier that. Her husband had made her do all kinds of indecencies or things, you know, things that would yeah. uh, get people's imagination she, going. She said that he made her read dirty stories out loud to him and things like that. 
So it was pretty clear they were just trying to save her by any means possible. So they would try one thing, and when that didn't work, they'd try a second mm -hmm. strategy, and if that didn't work, they'd try a third one. Yeah. And uh, but most people thought, hey, you know what? The motive is pretty easy to figure out. She just wanted to continue her fling with the much, much younger man, and she was about to get $30,000 in insurance, too. Seemed like a motive to me. Yeah, but it worked. It yeah. worked. She was um, she was let off free. They declared her temporarily insane, but now perfectly sane. Yeah, they, present. Yeah, they had three doctors to examine her to make sure she was presently sane, which meant she could leave. Uh, and it, it totally worked. Oh, uh, so what uh, happened to her? Uh, her uh, lover there, what, uh, what 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 was his, uh, how did his story turn out? Well, that sort of caps the whole thing. Uh, once it was time for him to go on trial, his attorneys obviously conferred and said, hey, this insanity, <laughs> or temporary insanity, it worked just fine for her, let's try it for him. But it didn't work for him. So uh, he went on trial in 1935, I think it was. And he was found guilty of temporary, I'm sorry, involuntary manslaughter. Right. And ended up getting in, the, in prison for one to ten years. Not really sure what they mean by involuntary. Yeah. Uh, shot intentionally them. shot the reverend <laughs> in the back of the head. Not sure what they mean by manslaughter. There was no accident, but that was the verdict they came up with. Uh, yeah. So I guess the criminal justice system was messed up then too, huh? I guess so. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. Uh, there's a lot of uh, unusual history in your book. Uh, there's a legacy of, uh, I suppose, other parts too, but grave robbing in Indiana. Um, do you have knowledge of that? Uh, the, the grave robbing. just incredible to read about it. Uh, if you go through the old papers, you find all these stories. Uh, there was so much grave robbing in Indiana back in the late 1800s and early 1900s that I'm almost convinced it was one of the top industries. Um, I wrote one book called Forgotten Tales of Indiana, where uh, it includes several chapters on grave robbers. <laughs> and... Uh, there were medical schools at the time. They needed cadavers for the students to dissect, but there just weren't that many to go around because generally they ended up getting uh, dead prisoners or executed criminals. And uh, also there were medical schools, not just in Indiana, but Kentucky and Ohio and Michigan, and they needed bodies too. So it just became a major industry, especially in Indiana, that uh, they would dig up bodies and rebury the caskets and mail off the bodies and they get money for it. Um, probably they could not uh, preserve the bodies for very long back then, so they they just needed fresh corpses all the time. Uh, yeah, yeah. They would uh, keep them in something called a pickling vat, which was just a large vat full of, um, I don't know what they used. They would use uh, arsenic sometimes. Um, and now the formaldehyde and ability to put, yeah. refrigeration and things, and now they they don't. So, um, 
yeah, I mean, there's all there's all kinds of story Edgar Allan Poe stories and things where they've actually uh, killed a person just to be able to supply a doctor with a fresh corpse. I suppose uh, that that actually kind of went on. Because, that uh, did just, happen. Yeah. Indeed it did. Uh, it kind of makes sense in a way if you're a body snatcher, but there's a shortage of bodies because <laughs> people are healthy and nobody's dying. It's a lot easier yeah. to make one well, than it is to wait for somebody to pass out naturally. Yeah, that's a lot of work so, to have to dig yeah, somebody out of the ground. There were a couple of Burke and Hare in the 1820s. Uh-huh. Who, to this day, if you murder someone to sell their body, it's called burking. Oh, okay. They they gave it they gave it a name, huh? So yeah. yeah, the beginning of the Forgotten Tales of Indiana tells about one mm-hmm. uh, one in particular, Rufus Cantrell was his name, and he was an Indiana who mostly dug up bodies with his gang and sold them. Right. But then after a certain point, they just found it easier to murder and sell the bodies. The, the criminal industries that just no longer exist anymore. There's just, uh, it's supply and demand. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's very true. There's no longer a demand, so there's no supply. We're still killing people, but for different reasons now. So, uh, interesting. Uh, how, how does one become, a, from your experience, how do you become a prolific writer? And what advice would you give to somebody that's interested in getting into to nonfiction writing as you are? Well, uh, in my case, I think it's just lots and lots and lots of research. Uh-huh. I go through old papers in a very systematic sort of way, looking for stories that preferably aren't very familiar. And uh, sometimes I will do a story that's familiar if I can find some new details that I haven't seen anywhere else. And if you do lots and lots of that, you'll see all these great stories unfolding in the papers a day at a time. And you can supplement your research with things with things like court records and ancestry.com records. Mm-hmm. And the nice thing is, is you get so many stories, you can pick and choose the best ones. So that's something I would very highly recommend because uh, things happen in real life that just totally, mm-hmm. you couldn't possibly imagine them. If you put something like it in a novel, everyone would say, oh, that could never really happen. Yeah. Like, like uh, a woman's raising uh, porcelain or china dolls instead of uh, the exactly. real thing. No one exactly. Would... You can uh, get away with things in real life that it would could never be done in fiction because it just wouldn't sound reasonable or realistic. Real life doesn't have to follow <laughs> rules like that. No. No, it, it, it follows its own rules. Uh, uh, is there yeah. a... Is there a benefit to um, going in the local papers as opposed to, like, the big-name papers or, or other books? Absolutely. Definitely, definitely. Uh, what, what I've been doing specifically is looking at the Louisville Courier-Journal from about 1830 all the way up to my cutoff date, 1939. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a major paper, one of the largest papers in the South, so you get all these stories for national news wires but i've discovered if you can get in the local paper you'll always find details that you don't get in the in the national press mm-hmm. so whenever i can i try to go to interlibrary loan and if possible get microfilmed newspapers from from the ta- from the town mm-hmm. 
And it helps because if you look at the national papers, you at least know who's involved and you know the dates. You know when something happened. So you know which date to go looking for. Mm-hmm. There was a pretty good example of that in, in the my last one, Murderous Acts. I read in the national papers about a murder that took place at a Halloween dance. Oh, great. No, I can't remember the town. Uh, it's in Indiana. It'll come to me. And it was just a little story, just a couple paragraphs. And it's the kind of thing that happens all the time. But what made it interesting to me was that the guy killed his girlfriend at the Halloween dance, but he accidentally caused someone else to die because there was a woman present who was so terrified at seeing a shooting up close and personal that she died of heart failure soon afterwards. And I thought, well, there's not much detail here, but it kind of sounds interesting. So I got the local paper on interlibrary loan, and it just turned out to be this epic story, just full of twists and turns and all kinds of great details about the editorials uh, written in the local papers, uh, the crying, dancing for youth, and just uh, the bizarre strategies the attorneys came up with. So going to the local papers ended up uh, with a wealth of details that the short national uh, short national papers didn't give. Does it give you an idea of how maybe people thought differently back then when you when you review some of these materials? Yeah, that's also a very interesting thing. Uh, part of the historical aspect of it is I think you can learn quite a bit about how social ideas change and. Um, just how people react to each other. Some ways it changes, and in some ways it doesn't. Mm-hmm. The way people react to crime, the way people react to punishment. Mm-hmm. Some things change, some things don't. And it's very interesting to see how these uh, things come about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I noticed they uh, in a couple of the stories they uh, the newspapers are hesitant to give details about uh, sexually motivated crimes or the crimes that have those details in them. They kind of write them in a way that lets people know, you know, read between the lines. While this day and age, they'd be much more uh, graphic about it. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a very good example of something that's changed. You 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 have to be very careful when you read those because, like you say, they very seldom will come out and say what <laughs> happened. They might beat around the bush a little. They might hint, but you have to kind of guess. But then, oddly enough, when it comes to just plain old murder they're very very graphic yeah they're more graphic than papers now yeah when it comes to sex crimes they're a lot more shy about describing exactly what happened but when it comes to just say a suicide or something they'll tell you everything yeah and it just tells you what details people wanted at the time yeah well and what kind of it's a it's a verbal behavior thing what kind of things are acceptable to speak of what words to use and then, you know, what things to imply and then, you know, uh, what, what's acceptable at one period and one's what's not. Uh, so, uh, what kind of, are you working on a book currently? You've written, I've looked in you've looked, written a lot. You've got, uh, an ax man in new Orleans. You've got a book about, a, uh, tornado, a Louisville, great Louisville tornado of 1890. So what are you working on currently? Well, right now I'm actually working on a Civil War book, okay. Strange Gothic Tales from the Civil War, uh-huh. which I think will come out. I think it would probably sell pretty well at battlefields, at national parks, for example. And there's a lot of Civil War buffs out there. Yeah. 
And I'm also working on one for Indiana University, sort of like uh, Murderous Acts, only instead of Midwestern stories, this is going to be Southern states. Mm -hmm. And if they like that one and it does well, I'll do one about Northern states. Mm -hmm. So I've covered almost every region at this point. Uh, you, uh, on the back of the book, maybe some or all of your books can be found at uh, historypress.net. That's uh, where some of them can be found, and uh, some of them can be found from Indiana University. Okay. Those are where most of them came from, either History Press or Indiana University, but some of my older ones came from different publishers. So I've worked with maybe four or five publishers over the years. And you've got a web, is this an active website, KevinMcQueenStories.com? Yes. I'll find out if anyone wants to find it. My name is spelled K-E-V-E-N right. rather than K-E-V-I-N. So you'd probably find it anyway if you typed in K-E-V-I-N. We'll, we'll make sure we'll put the right link on there when we put the podcast okay. up so people will be able to find them. Okay, Kevin McQueen, Murder and Mayhem. In Indiana, who knew we had so much? This is very entertaining. Uh, I really, uh, I really enjoyed it, and I, I appreciate you uh, telling your well-researched stories to our audience. Thank you. I really, really enjoyed being on too. Okay, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna look uh, some of your books as they go farther south, and uh, I might, uh, I might call you up again because I'm very interested in this stuff. Okay, I would love to be back on. Thank you. Okay, take care, Kevin. Okay, thanks. All right, bye-bye. All right, bye. been criminal behaviorology check us out on podomatic.com or anchor.fm please send questions comments and requests for transcripts to criminal behaviorology at gmail.com <laughs>